Hello, you are listening to the Halloween edition of What the Psychology, brought to you by host Katie Gonzalez. Hello, 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 my beautiful friends. I hope that you are just as excited as I am about Halloween. It is actually one of my favorite holidays, regardless of like its origins and stuff. As I've told you guys, we've had some company over, and last night we did some pumpkin carvings, and yeah, I'm excited because this is the first year that we will have trick-or-treaters the first Halloween in our house. So I am just super excited. I already have my costume, the chief editor has his costume, and I will post pictures later, so... Today I'm going to talk about the psychological aspects about Halloween and then I'm going to share a few stories that I remember hearing when I was young and also some that I found on the interwebs. So I hope you're ready for the spooky edition of What the Psychology. Alright, so a lot of people don't know that Halloween actually does have a lot of psychological aspects to it. That is something I actually learned recently and I find that super interesting. You know, it's that time of year again when themes of death, evil, and horror briefly seep into mainstream culture to play upon our excited imaginations. Yes, Halloween is upon us. Yeah, it's actually tomorrow, in fact. (laughs) Ghosts and zombies are everywhere. People are out buying costumes and decorating the homes and workplaces in preparation for the annual haunting event. So the origins of Halloween are pretty unique. Its origin comes from an ancient Celtic pagan tradition called Samhain, but it is spelled Samhain, or a lot of people pronounce it Samhain, but it's pronounced Samhain. It was celebrated approximately halfway between the fall equinox and winter solstice on October 31st. It marked the beginning of the darkest and toughest season. Bonfires were lit to appease the gods and the spirits that were believed to cross over to our world more easily during the dark season. Also, people thought that the souls of their ancestors visited them and needed welcoming feasts. The celebration of Samhain included walking from door to door in costumes, reciting verses in exchange for food. In the 9th century, Samhain was turned into the Christian celebration of All Saints and then All Souls Day. Eventually, Samhain and All Souls Day pretty much merged to create our Halloween, which is a horrifying display of skeletons and ghosts, which is usually for kids. But, you know, some of us adults, especially those that are really into true crime, this is kind of our time to, like, really let our hair down. (laughs) I know I definitely do. My husband's not too much into Halloween, but I always have been. So I'm just like, I'm so in it. 
Now, the fact that many people love to scare others and to be scared is not new. For ages, people have been trying to find ways to frighten others by jumping out from behind doors, using surprise stunts and gimmicks, wearing creepy makeup, and writing haunting messages on mirrors in order to stir up fright. The popularity of horror movies, video games, books, and television shows is a testament to just how much people enjoy toying with the idea of mortality. Very, very true. So now, have you ever asked yourself, what is it about this morbid, creepy, and spooky time of the year that we enjoy so much? In examining why people enjoy the Halloween time of the year, let's start by asking why people like to be frightened. Now, we talked about this in the beginning just a bit. And as we've talked about stress and the limbic system and our flight or fight or flight systems in the past, when we are scared, we experience that fear response. But it does go away quickly. It's not like chronic stress. It's more of a acute stress. It's there and then it goes away. And you experience all of the symptoms like heart palpitations, maybe trembling, maybe sweaty palms. And also anticipation plays into it, especially if you're like watching a horror film or you're walking through a haunted house. Halloween, it does play on our fears and our fantasies. We craft haunted houses and scary decorations to evoke particular emotions. We choose our costumes to reflect something about the kinds of people we are or want to be. Edgy, sexy, funny, clever. For children, Halloween is an experiment in delayed gratification and negotiation. Which candies to eat now, which to trade, which to save. And it's no surprise then that Halloween might reveal interesting features of human psychology. But you know, you actually might be surprised just what we can learn about it. In fact, you know, there's a long tradition of using Halloween to shed light on the human mind and behavior. Consider three examples of clever studies that use this yearly event to uncover features of human mortality, belief, and allegiance. So there was a study that was published in 1976, and researchers observed over 1,000 trick-or-treating children as they visited houses in Seattle on the evening of Halloween. The researchers were interested in understanding the conditions that lead to, quote, uninhibited behavior. In this case, stealing Halloween candy or money. One of the variables they manipulated was whether the adult who greeted the children at the entrance to a house asked for each child's name and address, thereby treating each child as an identical individual, or instead let each child remain anonymous. Either way, the adult then instructed each child to take one candy from the table while the adult went away to, quote, work in another room. Unbeknownst to the children, their behavior was actually recorded by an observer behind a peephole. So for each child, the observer recorded how many candies were taken as well as whether the child took any money from a bowl of coins next to the candy. And take candy and money they did. <laughs> About 30% of children took extra candy, money, or both. So the researchers identified several factors that did influence the probability that a child would steal candy or money. Thefts were more likely for children who remained anonymous, who were in groups rather than alone, remember, you know, by standard effect, and who were not accompanied by an adult. 
There was also an important influence of peer behavior. Kids in groups were more likely to steal if the first child in their group did so. Bystander effect. Yeah, bystander effect. We talked about that already. So it's kind of cool to see that come back full circle. And so it is that the simple pleasure of trick-or-treating can reveal something about the conditions that support bad behavior. About three decades later, a study was published in 2004. Three psychologists used Halloween to better understand how children differentiate fantasy from reality. In the study, 44 children heard about the candy witch at their child care center just before Halloween. The children were told that when invited to do so, the candy witch visits a house after Halloween to swap candy for a toy. Half the children also received, quote, evidence from the existence of the candy witch. They, quote, overheard their parents call the candy witch to arrange a toy swap, and the next morning they found that some of their candy had been replaced with a toy. Sounds kind of like the tooth fairy, <laughs> you know, except a tooth with money. Overall, 66% of the children claimed that the candy witch was real just after Halloween with younger children, mostly three-year-olds, more likely to do so than older children, mostly four- and five-year-olds. However, the older children were more sensitive to the presence or absence of evidence. Those who received evidence were often fooled. Those who did not were more skeptical. These findings challenge the idea that children are indiscriminately gullible. Levels of belief were quite high, but many children were never fooled. And the older children were appropriately influenced by the presence or absence of additional evidence. As a final example, consider a paper that was published. It was by two economists. They reported the results of Halloween experiments used to assess children's political preferences before the 2008 and 2012 presidential elections. To do so, they set up two candy tables at a house in a liberal neighborhood of New Haven that attracts many trick-or-treaters. One table was decorated with Obama campaign props, the other with campaign props for either McCain in 2008 or Romney in 2012. When children arrived to trick-or-treat, they were given one of two choices. Half the children were told they could go to the Obama table or to the McCain-Romney table and that they would receive the same amount of candy at each table. The other half were told that they would receive twice as much candy at the McCain-Romney table. The researchers were interested in how children would choose in the first case, but also whether extra candy would be more enough to sway their choice. In both years and in both cases, a majority of the 479 participants chose the Obama table, in 2008, 78% of children chose the Obama table when the candy payouts were equivalent, and 71% did so even when the McCain table offered more candy. In 2012, 82% chose the Obama table when the payouts were equivalent, and 78% did so even when the Romney table offered more candy. Now, these results suggest a pretty robust political preference, even among young children, some as young as four. 
They also suggest that a candy incentive wasn't enough for most children to switch their preference. Interestingly, though the older children, ages like nine and older, were more willing to shift their choice for greater candy. It's unclear whether this reflected a weaker political preference or a better appreciation for the extra value of the candy. The otherwise relatively inconsequential nature of the table choice. So now if we fast forward to another election cycle, the findings suggest that even young children are likely to be feeling the power political allegiances in their homes and communities, and that even a symbolic gesture, which table to choose, has personal value, at least the value of one or two pieces of Halloween candy. So these three examples of Halloween research, and they aren't the only ones out there, there are plenty more, they suggest some clever ways in which we can learn about human psychology and human behavior for this yearly tradition. They also put a new spin on the trick and trick or treat. <laughs> you might just think twice about what's governing your choices and beliefs this Halloween, just in case the trick is on you. So that is also pretty interesting. And if you remember our Freud episode when we talked about the id, ego, and superego, Halloween is actually a strong outlet for people's id. Rich, the id is the impulsive, pleasurable, dark side of our personalities and human nature, but in a carefully conceived, socially sanctioned way. At least in Freud's theory. Because, you know, the themes of Halloween are certainly morbid and scary, everything from ghosts to vampires and monsters and Gory, bloody skeletons is fair game when decorating otherwise placid neighborhood homes. Horror movies stream online all October and pop-up shops are bursting at the seams with cheap plastic forms of macrobie merriments. Trick-or-treating is the child-friendly distilled essence of a holiday that ultimately helps humans cope with the omnipresence of death and the fears and anxieties associated with death. So this holiday kind of gives people permission to openly express and address their feelings and concerns about death and fear itself in a more playful manner. The more ghoulish and gore the sights, the more even otherwise buttoned up folks clap their hands and adore them. The traditional Halloween costumes allow people to play act other identities, often with humorous, satirical, spooky, or sexy intent. Kind of like what I said before, the effect of these activities, they break down conventional social norms and boundaries for one day, and it's usually with entertaining results. Halloween parties and events, especially in cities, can be full of festive memories with strangers happily chatting or complimenting each other's costumes and laughing at the ingenuity or absurdity. There is also an element of sublimation and fear exposure. So, this is kind of like what I talked about when I mentioned haunted houses and, and like, scary movies. People play acting things that are dark and horrifying. They can help to defang those horrors. It is sort of a festive roleplay where one can reenact frightening things on one's own terms and in turn feel more empowered against those things. The ability to author and control your expression of fear can lead to a feeling of relative safety. 
You can reduce genuinely awful events to silliness and tongue-in-cheek dark humor. So, remember in the very first episode, man, it seems like it's been a while, when we talked about phobias and we talked about different methods to overcome those? Well, this is definitely one because it's more of like a desensitization because you are replacing something that's very anxious or very fearful and you're putting it in a more relaxing state. Halloween is a good time for us to desensitize our own fears, our own, yeah, our own phobias, our own thoughts, things that we would typically be terrified of. For example, like in Halloween decorations, sometimes you see, not even sometimes, but you'll see spiders, bats, skulls, graveyards, and more. Maybe snakes, like rats, things that people typically have these phobias of. And there is plenty of neurobiological evidence and research that specific phobias can improve after extinction of the fear sensitization pathway that triggers our evolutionary fight or flight response systems. So by swarming ourselves with cartoonish and exaggerated images of these phobia triggering phenomena, we may all be participating in a form of mass fear extinction therapy. Now, not everyone can or should minimize the genuine impact of traumas from death, murder, and other terrible events. Sometimes Halloween can become perhaps too flippant and too disassociated from what it mocks. So, for example, some people can't tolerate extremely gruesome or ultra-violent horror movies. Genuine violence towards others is not something to be sanitized or condoned. Desensitization to the point of emotional numbing can be counterproductive to facing our traumas and fears as well. But you know, Halloween only lasts for a brief time. Once a year and in the right context, it can be relatively safe and fun outlet for people to release and share what we all have in common. Our ongoing struggle to survive against difficult situations and our common vulnerability as human beings. So now, on the other hand, Halloween is also a celebration of our imagination and willingness to suspend our belief and dance with our neighbors and our friends. Don't let this dark part take away your lightheartedness. Because when you are not busy enjoying yourself and when you are not clinically depressed, what can you do to be brave and jump right into the fire of life? Hmm? Ever thought about that? If you think about it, Halloween does provide us with opportunities to safely explore our fears through social bonding. So many of us, we will participate while watching a scary movie together, going to a costume party, taking our kids trick-or-treating. If the reactions of other people can help enhance one's own enjoyment of horror movies and scary activities. Additionally, when we are scared, our bodies react. Of course, fight or flight. And when people share a spooky story or spine-chilling experience, they may feel closer to each other. Because of the release of a hormone known as oxytocin, and that has actually been found to intensify memories and facilitate social bonding. Of course, many hormones are released when you have that fear response. It can be cortisol, adrenaline, but also oxytocin. Which, that can be good and bad. It really depends on what is going on. But in this sense, it's a positive thing. 
Another thing is that in addition to our desire for social connectiveness, our personality factors may also impact our reactions to fearful situations. So there has actually been a review of research into how empathy influences people's reactions to graphic horror films and has discovered that individuals with high levels of empathy who share the distressing emotional responses of others are less interested in frightening violent movies regardless of the film's outcome. I could agree to that because for me myself, I'm not really a big horror film fan. I like Halloween-themed movies that aren't scary, like stuff that we would watch when we were kids. And I'm a highly empathetic person. But I also don't mind listening to other podcasts that have, like, gory details and things like that. But I guess it's the actual visualization of it that I don't really like. Our brains, they actually do enjoy being scared, which is why Halloween is so much fun. When we are watching a scary movie or visiting a haunted house... We know that we are safe and free from risk. This allows us to enjoy the experience and get a rush of adrenaline and release of endorphins and dopamine in the process. Because those situations we know we're in like a safe space, we can experience it without being in actual harm's way. That's what makes the experience more enjoyable. Now, if you're in an actual real situation where you're like faced with a murder or with a knife or something, that's completely different. But this is why we talk about Halloween in this context, because even though there are things that are frightful, our brains can enjoy a little bit amount of stress and we know that we're safe in the usual instances. And so it's actually okay and pretty healthy and can be exciting. You know, people have always had a fascination with the Maccabee and Demented. It's why countries around the world celebrate their own version of Halloween. From Dia de los Muertos in Mexico to the Hungry Ghost Festival in China. And Dia de los Muertos, I don't know too much about it. I do know that in different countries, like in Central America, is celebrated differently than in Mexico. I know that religion and culture have a lot to do with it. For instance, my family in Guatemala, they celebrate this a little bit differently. They'll go to the graves to pay respects, but they don't actually offer up things to their loved ones, mostly because their religion is mostly Catholic or Protestant. And so they don't really believe fully into the spirit of Dia de los Muertos. So... But I think it's fun. I mean, it, it really depends on what you do, what your beliefs are, and how you can celebrate without crossing the line of um, of your own beliefs. Like, you can still celebrate things without crossing that line of it to hinder your own values. At least that's how I see it. I know a lot of, I wouldn't say I know a lot of Christians, but I do know Christians that are completely against Halloween because of its pagan roots. But if you look at all of our major holidays, all of them have major pagan roots. And at some point, Christians took it and made it quote-unquote Christian. Or at least not as celebratory in a way that's towards other gods or goddesses or, or whatnot. Even Christmas has pagan origins. So, I don't know. 
For me, I, I look at it towards a fun holiday to let our hair loose, to dress up, have fun, pass out some candy to kids, and just enjoy the festivities. But other people see it as worship or however, or that because it has pagan origins, it's a bad holiday. But that's kind of my spiel, but... Now I want to share a couple of stories and myths. I did post about if anyone had any creepy stories. And I got a lot of good feedback. Um, my uncle actually, I'm going to call him out just because. He, he said, oh, what a horror when my younger sister had a fourth. And he was referring to me. So I was like, yep, that was definitely a scary time. <laughs> but, um. Like I said in early episodes, my me and my family, we always pick on each other. So, a lot of other good suggestions were like going over like horror films that are based on reality and things like that. Also like Texas Massacre being based on Ed Gein and things like that. I think those are such great ideas to where I cannot pack it into one episode. So, I think that might be something that I do in the next coming weeks because I think we're still going to go over the cult stuff but I don't want to just load it up with that maybe we could do this in spite of the still spooky season I feel like here it's always the spooky season and uh we can go over those too my my thing is once it's like closer to Thanksgiving it's then it's Thanksgiving Also, another thing about me, I will not listen to Christmas music until after Thanksgiving, usually. Last year, it was different with COVID. I was, like, really down in the dumps, so I had to start listening to Christmas music early. (laughs) But I am very much a person who is very celebratory of every holiday that I enjoy. I enjoy Halloween. I enjoy Thanksgiving. And I enjoy Christmas, but I'm like, every every holiday has its time and place. I will walk into a store and I get so angry that there's already Christmas stuff up and it's not even Halloween yet. I, I get so frustrated. But I also get it. People do want to get things early. I also might do a little bit of shopping, like Christmas shopping early. But getting into the spirit of Christmas, I don't do that until day after Thanksgiving. Day after Thanksgiving, that's when we redecorate, Christmas tree goes up, but not until after. So, that's just a little tidbit about me. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to talk about a story. It's it's a myth of what came about one of our traditions that we use. And it's cool because it's an Irish myth and I have a little bit of Irish blood. So, that's really cool. So, there's an Irish myth about a man named... Stingy Jack. He is believed to have led to the tradition of carving scary faces into girds. According to the legend, Jack tricks the devil into paying for his drink and then traps him in the form of a coin. The devil eventually takes revenge and Stingy Jack ends up roaming earth for eternity without a place in heaven or hell. Jack does, however, have a lighted coal which he places inside a carved turnip creating the original jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> so just a fun little um, myth about behind jack-o'-lanterns. And like I said, we just did our jack-o'-lanterns last night and now they're on our steps. And I'm really excited for tonight because that is when we will, we will light them 
tonight and that that way we can kind of get trick-or-treaters to come our way and we live in a pretty big suburban area so i'm really excited (laughs) i can't contain my excitement guys all right so this next little story is something that i heard growing up around the campfire and the one that i found is a little bit different but i'm gonna tell it the way that i remember it being told And this story and the next one, they were rewritten, retold by S.E. Schlozer. So just want to give some credit to her. But I'm going to definitely read this first one, how I remember it. Jane wore a scarf around her neck every day. And I mean every day, rain or shine, whether it was matched her outfit or not. And annoyed her best friend Johnny after a while. He was her next door neighbor and had known Jane since she was three. When he was young, he had barely noticed the scarf, but now they were in high school together and it bothered him. Why do you wear that scarf around your neck, Jane? He'd ask her every single day, but she would not tell him. Still, in spite of his aggravation, Johnny thought she was cute. He asked her to the soda shop for an ice cream sundae. Then he asked her to watch him play in the football game. Then he started seeing her home, and come the spring, he asked her to the first dance. Jane always said yes when he asked her out, and she always wore a dress that would match the scarf around her neck. It finally occurred to Johnny that he and Jane were going steady, and he still didn't know why she wore the scarf around her neck. So he asked her about it yet again, and yet again she did not tell him. Maybe someday I'll tell you about it, she replied. Someday? That answer quite annoyed Johnny, but he shrugged it off because Jane was so cute and fun to be with. Well, time flew by, and as it was a habit of doing, and one day Johnny proposed to Jane, and it was accepted. She said yes. They planned a big wedding, and Jane hinted that she might tell him about the scarf around her neck on their wedding day. But somehow, what with the preparations and his beautiful bride and the lovely reception, Johnny never got around to asking Jane about it. And when he did remember, she got a bit teary-eyed and said, We are so happy together. What difference does it make? And Johnny decided she was right. Johnny and Jane raised a family of four with the usual ups and downs, laughter and tears. When their golden university rolled around, Johnny once again asked Jane about the scarf around her neck. It was the first time he brought it up since the week after their wedding. Whether their children asked him about it, he'd always hushed them, and somehow, none of the kids had dared ask their mother. Jane gave Johnny a sad look and said, Johnny, you've waited this long, you can wait a while longer. And Johnny actually agreed. He accepted that answer. It was not until Jane was on her deathbed a year later that Johnny, seeing his last chance slip away, asked Jane one final time about the scarf she wore around her neck. She shook her head a bit at his persistence and then said with a sad smile, Okay, Johnny, you can go ahead and take the scarf off. With shaking hands, Johnny fumbled for the scarf and he slowly slipped it off of his wife's neck. And then Jane's head fell off. (laughs) Ain't that spooky, y'all? It's kind of a fun little story that I grew up hearing. I don't remember who told me, but yeah. It's kind of more of a kid's tale, but it's always fun to say. 
Okay, I think I have two more. Nope, I have, this is the last store. This one is more, I guess, horror or um, horror or kind of gory. And this one is retold by the same author I listed. Susan and Ned were driving through a wooded intersection of highway. Lightning flashed, thunder roared, and sky went dark, and the torrential downpour. We better stop, said Susan. Ned nodded his head in agreement. He stepped on the brake, and suddenly the car started to slide on the slick pavement. They plunged off the road and slid to a halt at the bottom of an incline. Pale and shaking, Ned quickly turned to check if Susan was all right. When she nodded, Ned relaxed and looked through the rain-soaked windows. I'm going to see how bad it is, he told Susan. And when, and he went out into the storm. She saw his blurry figure in the headlight walking around the front of the car. A moment later, he jumped in beside her, soaking wet. The car's not badly damaged, but we're will deep in mud, he said. I'm going to have to go for help. Susan swallowed nervously. There would be no quick rescue here. He told her to turn off the headlights and lock the doors until he returned. X Murder Hollow. Although Ned hadn't said the name out loud, they both knew what he had been thinking when he told her to lock the car. This was the place where a man had once taken an axe and hacked his wife to death in a jealous rage over an alleged affair. Supposedly, the axe-wielding spirit of the husband continued to haunt this section of the road. Outside the car, Susan heard a shriek, a loud thump, and a strange gurgling noise. But she couldn't see anything in the darkness. Frightened, she shrank down into her seat. She sat in silence for a while, and then she noticed another sound. It was a soft sound, like something being blown by the wind. Suddenly, the car was illuminated by a bright light. An official sounding voice told her to get out of the car. Ned must have found a police officer. Susan unlocked the door and stepped out of the car. As her eyes adjusted to the bright light, she saw it. Hanging by his feet from the tree next to the car was the dead body of Ned. His bloody throat had been cut so deeply that he was nearly decapitated. The wind swung his corpse back and forth so that it thumped against the tree. Susan screamed and ran toward the voice and the light. As she drew close, she realized the light was not coming from a flashlight. Standing there was a glowing figure of a man with a smile on his face and a large, solid, and definitely real axe in his hands. She backed away from the glowing figure until she bumped into the car. Playing around when my back was turned, the ghost whispered, stroking the sharp blade of the axe with his fingers. You've been very naughty. The last thing she saw was the glint of the axe blade in the eerie, incandescent light. Ooh, spooky! That gives me spooky vibes, y'all. Well, that's pretty much all I have for this episode. I know it's kind of short, but I wanted to give you a Halloween edition. And with that, enjoy your Halloween. Let me know what your plans are. Are you dressing up? Are you going trick-or-treating? Taking your kids trick-or-treating? Are you dressing up your dog like I am? <laughs> Ain't that right, Augie? Yeah, the chief editor, I'm about to put him to work. 
He's going to edit this, and then I'm going to put him in his costume. And I will uh, send pictures later on tonight about what we are wearing. So, I am your host, Katie Gonzalez, and you've been listening to What the Psychology. Stay like you